quick note, the views and opinions expressed in this program are the personal views and opinions of the speakers acting in their private capacity and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of Brigham Young University or any other entity. Thanks for tuning in to Why Life Science, a podcast produced by the BYU Life Science Museum at Brigham Young University. I'm Katie Knight. And I'm Austin Lambert. Our mission here at the Life Science Museum is to inspire wonder, understanding, and reverence for our evolving planet. So with this podcast, we are here to bring you stories and interviews about life science research and projects going on in the College of Life Sciences at BYU and in the local community. Visit our website, lsm.byu.edu, for more information and to access notes from each episode. Welcome to Why Life Science. Today we're here with Ben Abbott and Sam Bratzman. Uh, Sam is a grad student with Zach Onderud in the College of Life Sciences, and Ben is a professor of ecology and ecosystem ecology is typically ecosystem how I ecology. Yeah. But he's our local expert on Utah Lake and has worked with all the scientists in the area, helping put together a lot of the information of what we know about Utah Lake. So we're excited to talk about uh, the history and the current state of Utah Lake, and then what the future for the lake might look like. So, Ben, maybe if you want to give us just an overview of, of Utah Lake, how long has it been in the area? Yeah. <laughs> when, did, when did Utah Lake move in? You know, that's such an awesome question. And, you know, lakes are interesting that way because in geological time, rivers are actually more persistent than lakes systems because lakes are often at the downstream portion of, a, of an ecosystem and so they're receiving inputs they're very dynamic and changing so that question's pertinent and Utah Lake's been around for you know the past 10 to 14,000 years before that um, we live in the Great Basin and the Great Basin has no outlets to the ocean no surface water outlets to the ocean so that means that any rain or snow that falls here it's got two Two places basically it can go downstream to collect in the groundwater and lakes down below, or it can evaporate up to the atmosphere. And during that period, up to about 15,000 years ago, there was a, more precipitation and less evapotranspiration. It was a series of these large lakes, um, Lake Bonneville and Lake Lahontan were the two largest. And they were about on the same size as the Great Lakes today. I mean, just enormous inland seas. And so where we're sitting today here on BYU campus is one of the deltas that was deposited during the Bonneville period. That was Bonneville level. It was a particular level. And even though we all know that some universities are better than others, actually <laughs> BYU and University of Utah and Utah State University are all on the same Bonneville delta level. And so to the foot, we're at the same elevation. So it's really cool. Yeah, wow. That kind of helps you visualize what this area would have looked like everywhere from, and, and sometimes the level of the lake was even higher, but at least where BYU was, everything in the valley was covered with water. Um, wow. A totally different environment during that time period. So the biology was different. There were uh, glaciers coming in from the north and ice sheets actually from the north. And then around 15,000 years ago, there was a volcano that went off. Isn't this the coolest story? Like, <laughs> <laughs> we've got climate change, ice sheets, volcanoes. So a volcano went off and diverted the Bear River. The Bear River used to flow into the Snake River Valley. Um, but now it flows uh, north for a while and then circles back around, and it's the number one tributary to the Great Salt Lake today. And so when that was diverted because of this uh, lava flow, that increased the amount of water going into the lake, and things slowly started to fill up, right? It changed that delicate hydrological balance. And think of it as a giant bathtub. When you get to the top, it starts to overflow. And so at Red Rock Pass, just north of the Utah-Idaho border, that started to overflow, and it ended up that there was a very unconsolidated sediment there. And so just in a few days, one of the largest floods that we know about in geological history occurred, where Lake Bonneville dropped tens of feet and uh, flowed out through the Snake River Valley. You can still see these landforms from wow. the flood, these giant dunes that were deposited during this enormous cataclysm. And, you know... Um, 
the uh, the native peoples have told us for a long time that they were around for that, that they have a history here that goes back tens of thousands of years. And the view just based on kind of current archaeology had always been, oh, we don't see strong evidence of pre-Clovis people. But just this last year, uh, we now have definitive evidence that at least 20,000 years ago, there, were al- there was already a substantial human presence in this area. And so indeed, we should have been listening and taking more seriously those accounts from the, the native groups. But there were people that saw that. There were people surely that perished in the Snake River Valley when this flood came through. And, and, and can you imagine camping on the side of this enormous lake, waking up the next day, and it's hundreds of feet away from you, oh, right? I mean, wow. this must have been amazing to yeah. see. I had no idea. I didn't know this story. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. You know, when, when we learn about an, an ecosystem and the different dimensions of its history, it prepares us a lot more to have an informed conversation about what should our relationship be with that ecosystem? But it's really neat to see so many people interested in the Utah Lake system and uh, learning about it. Let me see, where were we? The lake uh, drains in this cataclysmic flood. And then because of natural climate variation at that time, there was just a little bit less precipitation input and a little bit more evapotranspiration from the watershed. And so that resulted in a, in a gradual decline of the Bonneville lake level. And it was interrupted. You know, there'd be periods of tens or hundreds of years with a little bit more rain and snow. So the lake would fill a little bit, but it was on this long-term trajectory toward toward drying out. And uh, ultimately, it got so dry that we were only left with a few remnants of Lake Bonneville. Great Salt Lake is the largest by far. Utah Lake is the second largest, and then Severe Lake. And Severe Lake is really interesting because it's what we call an ephemeral lake. It it only fills every few years. Some of that's natural because as a smaller watershed, less uh, precipitation in the watershed, but some of that also is because of of water diversions, and we'll we'll talk about that later. So then, say, when uh, pioneers or Europeans start coming into Utah, what does the lake look like at that time? Yeah, so I'll go back even a little bit before that. The first European contact was with Father Escalante, Spanish missionary who was coming through this area. And he had contact with uh, Chief Tirianachi, who was the leader of the Timpanogos Nation. And they were part of the uh, Eastern Shoshone uh, snake people that lived here. And um, Chief Tirianachi uh, welcomed Father Escalante. It, introduced him to uh, Lake Timpanogos, the original name of the lake. Now, it's interesting, Father Escalani made a map of the area, but it, it wasn't complete, and he kind of thought that this was maybe an extension of the Great Salt Lake rather mm. than an independent water body. But in any case, that's on the, the cart. So that was in the late 1700s. Um, I think the year was actually 1776, but there's some... Oh. Uh, so <laughs> in- interesting to think about what was going on in the eastern yeah. United States yeah. at that time. So Chief Tirinacci uh, was there, a powerful leader, and this coalition of peoples of the Timpanogos Nation uh, were well-connected uh, all up and down the Wasatch Front, down into San Pete County and beyond. They have connections with uh, peoples all throughout uh, Utah. And then in 1847, the Mormon pioneers arrived in the Salt Lake Valley. Now, it's interesting. They actually, their first choice was Utah Valley. It had a, a freshwater lake, more resources, uh, better environment. But, and so you see in their early plans, as they were talking about where they might settle, that was one of the original targets. But for a variety of reasons, it was very prominent that the Timpanogos Nation was housed here. It was really important culturally to them, and they wanted to avoid conflict. So they took kind of the second best valley, uh, mm. Salt Lake Valley. Again, hey, this is great. We're getting in our yeah. Utah Valley, <laughs> Salt Lake Valley jabs and everything. Um <laughs> They took the second best valley as a concession to to keep uh, relations um, better. Now, just a few years after that, in 1850, is when um, uh, Brigham Young sent uh, settlers down into Utah Valley with Fort Utah. And initially, the the relations were good. They had trade. Brigham Young gave very strict instructions to avoid violence, even if there was stealing uh, or perceived stealing, right? Oftentimes, it was the kind of thing that something would go wrong and the settlers would blame um, the the indigenous peoples for that. Though, but So Brigham Young was aware of that. He wanted to preserve amicable relations, make sure this was a long-term uh, settlement. And so he said, under no circumstances should you engage in violence. Unfortunately, a few years later, some of the local settlers broke that rule and they murdered a uh, Timpanogos man who was known as Old Bishop, 
unfortunately we don't have his uh, his actual name, but uh, in the community he was known as Old Bishop, and they murdered him and uh, realized right away they were going to get in trouble from the local people, uh, the Timonogos Nation, and, uh, and Brigham Young. And so they hid his body in the Provo River, um, and uh, th- then when the Provo River flooded, they, the Timonogos Nation recovered his body, and it was, of course, uh, livid that this had happened, right? That these people that they'd welcomed into their community had betrayed them in this way. So that began a series of conflicts. Um, the... The Utah Valley uh, settlers multiple times petitioned uh, Salt Lake and Brigham Young and said, hey, send down the troops, right? The Timpanogos Nation are really upset. And Brigham Young said repeatedly, no. I mean, they they have not engaged in any violence. We are not going to respond that way. But they kept on petitioning and finally kind of exaggerating the claims. By the way, there there are really good records of this. First at the um, Timpanogos Nation's website, that's timpanogostribe.com. And then also the Utah Historical Quarterly has really good detailed kind of day-by-day accounts of what's going on here. I'll add those in our show notes so there'll be links for people to access. Awesome. Again, I'll just reiterate, many of us, these are our ancestors. All of us living here, there are predecessors, the Timpanogos Nation and then the, the Mormon settlers. And so I think we really need to know about this history so we can uh, properly act in, in kind. Uh, after several rounds of entreating, Brigham Young finally did acquiesce and say, okay, if it really is as bad as you say, we'll send down some of the uh, of, our, of our military force. They came down, they had a, a conflict that was called uh, Wakara's War. So I should have mentioned, at the time that the Mormon pioneers arrived, it was several generations la- later. Mm-hmm. So there were seven grandsons of Chief Tirianachi who were the leaders of the Timpanogos Nation. One of them was Chief Wakara. And it's spelled in different ways, sometimes just W-A-K-A-R-A, other times has an L before the K. Um, it doesn't matter that much, and indeed the Timpanogos Nation has told us the same thing, right? This is an anglicized version of, of the name. But uh, Chief Wakara was the leader, and so th- the... The Mormon movement into the area, and then this this uh, violent conflict triggered this Wakara's War, which is a which was a multi year, but thankfully not um, n- not completely bloody and overtly violent at that time. It was mainly a series of skirmishes. Now I shouldn't minimize there were there were casualties on both sides, and so that was a that was a tragedy. But things calmed down, and for the next ten or fifteen years, the relations were better. Unfortunately, as uh, and this was also a part of the broader context of what was going on in the United States at that time and the and U.S. territories such as um, as here, but the the conflict was getting greater. The settlers were expanding their influence. They weren't respecting the agreements that they had made um, when they first arrived. So tensions were rising, and a much broader conflict called the Black Hawk War broke out, and that. Um, that really is a, a tragedy that all of us should know about. It was a multi-year, multi-tribe, uh, multi-state uh, uh, conflict with hundreds and thousands of casualties. Really a bad situation. And um, that finally ended up with uh, Chief Tabby. Now, sometimes he is uh, incorrectly called Chief Tabiola. And um, that's actually the Ute name for Chief Tabby. And I'll talk about the Utes came later. But the Chief Tabby negotiated a peace treaty with the Mormon settlers in Heber Valley and uh, agreed to relocate to the Uinta Ure um, Reservation. And that had been created a few years prior by President Lincoln. Um, And so even though they didn't have a very strong connection to that area, you know, the Uinta Ure is in a totally different kind of ecosystem. It's much higher elevation in in the Uintas. But they they recognized that... um, that that was kind of their only option. So they negotiated that peace treaty, relocated to the Uinta Ure um, reservation. Then it wasn't for a few years, until a few years after that, that five Ute groups from Colorado were relocated after a conflict there to the same reservation. And the, the Utes actually outnumbered the Timpanogos. And so the, um, the Utes have become more influential and more recognized in our current history. And so much of, the hi- much of the indigenous history that we know of this region is filtered through that Ute lens. And so that's why it's been really encouraging to see uh, the current leader of the Timpanogos Nation is Chief Executive Mary Murdoch Meyer. And she uh, has been um, engaging and speaking. And uh, you can find uh, one of her really moving talks at utahlake.byu.edu. Uh, she I remember hearing her at, at the symposium this yeah. summer. 
Yeah. Wasn't it incredible to hear yeah. her direct story? I also thought, given the, the, the violent history of the ejection of her people from this valley, it was incredibly generous and yeah. forward-looking. I mean, she absolutely could have come in and said, look, you uh, mistreated us. You've mistreated the ecosystem. Now you, you made your bed. Now sleep in it. Right? right. But instead, she came in and was offering words of guidance and wisdom. It was really, really inspiring. That brought us to kind of the rapid ex- Mormon expansion period. And the population in Utah Valley, San Pete Valley, uh, Heber Valley was increasing rapidly. And this was putting uh, pressure on the lake much of the water that had previously flowed to Utah Lake was diverted for agriculture, right? They needed to uh, support themselves. And this was a very new environment. You know, the, culturally, many of these uh, settlers to this area had come from Scandinavia, right? A, a very strong Danish and Swedish influence uh, from England, places that are not like this area as far as a semi-arid ecosystem. And so their their folk ways and ways of building homes and ways of doing agriculture weren't suited to um, what this area could support. Uh, you saw this overuse of local resources, the diversion of all these rivers, and it came to a head uh, actually in the early 20th century. What I would say by far is the darkest day of Utah Lake was during the Dust Bowl. So the population had grown. There was lots of agriculture, but it wasn't very well coordinated or regulated. And these extreme diversions in combination with a um, multi-year dry period that uh, was a contributing factor to the Dust Bowl resulted in Utah Lake almost completely drying up. Now, at that time, any water that made it to the Great Salt Lake was considered wasted water. This was also the predominant view in water management throughout the western U.S. Any water that made it to the Pacific Ocean, it was just a waste. It doesn't serve any purpose, right? It gets salty, and then you can't use it for anything. So very human-centric view of the system, but also a very incomplete view of the system. Right, right. We now know how crucial that those connections are, and we're seeing now. This year, the Great Salt Lake um, broke, or sorry, last year, 2021, broke the all-time low of the level that it's been at since um, the 1800s when we started having uh, direct observations. The largest pumps, as far as we know, in the world were actually in Utah Lake at that time. Water users in the Jordan River Valley would use these giant pumps to just take everything out of the lake that they could and uh, flood irrigate the orchards and fields that they had there. So when the lake went dry, this was an emergency. And indeed, the governor declared a state of emergency. This was a a part of the Great Depression and the the Dust Bowl. But huge economic effects, um, decreased property values. You couldn't have the agriculture that you had before. So again, you start to see if we mismanage the ecosystem around us, it always comes back and affects people. And the lake almost completely dried up. There were uh, a few wet wet spots, kind of mud holes around the lake. That allowed some fish to survive. But there even are accounts of fish getting sunburns because there only were these shallow areas. And so they were literally getting wow. UV damage. Uh, also, it could have been uh, just heat damage from the, um, from the warm water. But there are pictures of people out on the lake boxing and the governor drove his truck across the lake to go and make this press conference about how we need to change this. Thankfully, very... Uh, strong regulations were put in place at the state and county level saying we now need to keep track of who's taking out how much we need to ensure that this doesn't happen again and that made a huge difference uh, about what time frame did they start making these regulations that was in the ni- 19 mid 1930s okay. so the the drying events were in as far as we can tell 1934 35 okay. and then in just the years immediately after that they put in place uh, these very stringent requirements of of measuring who was taking out how much water where and that had almost immediate impacts the lake uh, began to refill and these giant pumps were decommissioned. They realized, hey, we just can't do that. And th- this is an interesting concept, right? Sometimes when we see a, an ecological limitation, our immediate thought is, let's change the ecosystem. That's We call that demand-side management in hydrology. Let's get more water here. Let's build more dams or pipelines or things like that. Now, the other more resilient and also much cheaper response is demand-side management. So... Let's acknowledge, okay, we need to live within our means. Sure, there, there's, there are small changes that make sense to, to put in place, but we don't want to completely restructure these ecosystems. And that's indeed, in modern ecology, one of our only four laws. 
nature knows best. <laughs> and it's also sometimes described as the law of unintended consequences. Uh, right. I kind of call it the Jurassic Park law. <laughs> you know, don't when, mess. <laughs> that's right. Don't mess with these big systems. Uh, show some humility. Make sure you understand how they work. And then start with the least um, invasive changes possible. It's a principle for medicine as well, right? The first rule is do no harm, not go in and make as many changes as you can. And an ecosystem is very similar in many ways to a complex organism with all of these parts. And you may think, oh, the pancreas, that doesn't look important. <laughs> but the, 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 the attributes of these ecosystems are crucial to their, especially their long-term functioning. Because we never have a complete story. Think about if we had listened more to the indigenous peoples, we would have known more about, hey, this, this area can really change hydrologically a lot. So pay attention. What is the precipitation doing? What's the evapotranspiration doing? We didn't. We arrived and just took that, um, that view, that kind of northern European view of, okay, no, there's, there's always enough water. In fact, there's too much water. We should be draining wetlands and all these things. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was the opposite here. Um, though we've learned since there also can be periods of too much water. Uh, but so those things were put in place. The lake started to recover. And th before and after that drying period, Utah Lake was the cultural center of the Wasatch Front. So there were multiple resorts all around Utah Lake. There were boats that went out on the lake. The USS Showboat was a dance boat oh. uh, <laughs> where you could go out and have your party and um, actually even some very stern talks at state conference encouraging people not to get too raucous out on the lake so <laughs> what happens on the lake stays on the lake <laughs> i don't think that's doctrine katie but uh <laughs> um so it was it was really really important yeah. you know providing these uh what we think of as traditional ecosystem services water and food there's one really important thing that i need to back up and talk about so in those early years in the 1850s when the settlements here were just starting out. Um, there were crop failures in uh, eight, the mid-1850s. I think the years 1854 was the biggest one. And Utah Lake is one of the most productive ecosystems in the world. Mm. If you look at the per meter primary and secondary production, it's incredible. It's like a rainforest right in our backyard. And this was really important because the number of fish that Utah Lake supports is enormous. Uh, even today, after all these changes, they're it's estimated to be about 10 million fish that live wow. in Utah Lake. So <laughs> more fish in this one lake than in the entire state of Utah, right? Uh, as far as people in the entire state of Utah. So the bounty of this lake saved the early Mormon pioneers. And they put out these fish traps. June sucker, uh, one of the endemic fish in Utah Lake, means it only lives there. And June sucker have a really interesting life cycle where they move up the rivers to spawn, um, similar to what people are familiar with with salmon, except they're not moving from ocean to, to river, they're moving from lake to river. So in May and June, the June sucker will move up these rivers to spawn. So that allowed uh, the pioneers to collect large numbers of these fish. They put out fish traps, the June sucker would swim into them, and they used that as a food source. There even are accounts of them bringing all of these fish up to Salt Lake to to show them and put them before Brigham Young, who then decided, okay, who needs the most? Not only in Utah County, but throughout all of the Mormon colonies. So mm. uh, Utah Lake, in a really miraculous fashion, came to the rescue of, of the Mormon pioneers. And we're, of course, familiar with the, the miracle of the seagulls. We need to be familiar with and grateful for this miracle of the, of the fish of Utah Lake. So that had happened. And then because of overfishing in Utah Lake, the fish population declined. And right after the connection of the um, Union and Pacific Railroads, there was a government program to introduce carp into freshwater bodies across the U.S. And that was because carp reproduce quickly. They're very good food fish, right? Through much, much of Asia, they're a sought-after food fish. And um, they were introduced intentionally uh, to Utah Lake in the mid-1880s to replace the depleted native fish in that area. Again, think back to this concept of ecosystems aren't amusement parks, right? And when you make yeah. these changes, whether it's removing a species, adding a species, removing water, or adding water, it has uh, long-term consequences, and we certainly see that now. The Carp loved Utah Lake and the surrounding waters, and uh, they <laughs> reproduced and spread through all of those water bodies. We now see carp in 
many lakes and rivers around Utah, not only Utah Lake. So um, Utah Lake continued to be really important uh, recreationally and economically uh, through the, the mid-20th century. Famously, the U.S. government um, built Geneva Steel, a steel plant that was put intentionally inland. Right, Most of our steel plants ended up being coastal, where it's really easy to move the materials out. But the reasoning was, if World War II went in a different direction, then we would have an inland area to make steel mm. that wasn't as vulnerable to Japanese or European attack. So, wow. um, Never knew that. Yeah, so steel requires a lot of water. It also right. requires uh, coal and uh, materials. All those things were available right there on the shore of Utah Lake. And so for decades, uh, Geneva Steel was there. There was growing um, population, growing pressure on the lake. And sometime in the mid-60s or 70s, we now know from sediment pores that have been taken, this is work that's a part of the Utah Lake Water Quality Study. This is another great resource for anybody interested in any aspect of the lake. It's a multi-year, multi-million dollar comprehensive study that uh, Sam Bratzman will talk about. Uh, he and uh, his advisor, Zach Andrew, are involved in that, um, trying to understand every aspect of the lake. And so thanks to their work, this has been led by Janice Brainy at Utah State University, we know that there was an uh, ecological shift in the 60s or 70s where the lake transferred from primarily emergent vegetation so reeds and um, plants that you see along the shoreline. And remember, Utah Lake is extremely shallow because of that geological history. Lake Bonneville was here. It deposited these large, flat playas. Um, and we also know that the sedimentation rate in Utah Lake has actually not changed that much. So some of our activities have increased erosion, like all the construction we do. However, the dams that we've put in have reduced erosion by about the same amount. So mm -hmm. the amount of sediment getting to Utah Lake is very similar. Uh, some people are under the uh, misunderstanding that Utah Lake used to be very deep uh, and different than it is today. It was different in, in many ways that we'll talk about, but uh, the, sh the shallowness has always been an important aspect of the lake system. So... Um, that change happened in the 60s or 70s. It's attributable to the, the water diversions. You know, we really changed the hydrology of the lake. And then with the growing population, we initially had some nutrient flow from agriculture. However, it became dominant wastewater from urban activities. So every time we flush the toilet or put something down the garbage disposal, that ends up going to our wastewater treatment plants. We remove uh, the ickiest stuff from that. It's not all the human pathogens and solids and things like that, but some of the nutrient gets to the lake, and then that stimulates uh, productivity there. So together that caused this ecosystem shift in the lake. Um, there were a couple really interesting legal things that happened around the same time. I don't know how much you want to get into this, but... No, keep going. This is fascinating. To me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in August, there was a symposium called the Utah Lake Symposium at Utah Valley University, and uh, it was really cool. Experts from the cultural side, the legal side, the ecological side, the hydrological side came together to try to put forth this uh, picture of Utah Lake. And so I encourage anyone who wants to read more. There's a, a non-technical document there with a bunch of frequently asked questions about Utah Lake that you can dig into. The, in the 1970s, there was the oil crisis in the U.S., so about a 10% decline in the supply of oil from the Middle East, and that caused shortages throughout the U.S. The federal government... Uh, had information that there might be oil deposits under Utah Lake. And they oh. came in and wanted to drill on Utah Lake. And um, the state government uh, sued them for that and said, no, you can't do that. Because when Utah became a state in 1896, right? Somewhere around there. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up here in Utah Valley, and so grew up singing the sesquicentennial song yeah. in 1996, but uh, or yeah, whatever. Um, uh, when it had become a state, everything under navigable waters, under the Great Salt Lake, Utah Lake, Bear Lake, uh, under the equal footing doctrine of the Constitution, was transferred to, to the state to be held in permanent trust for the people of Utah, present and future. That's called the public trust doctrine. And it's um, a very strict uh, legal framework that says, hey, you can't sell off uh, these these lands. They need to be held for the people of Utah. You can have some kinds of activities and even some development on them, but you need to demonstrate that it's for the uh, the public benefit. So I'll refer to that public trust doctrine later on, but in the 1970s, these oil disputes 
uh, the, the state was able to use that equal footing and public trust doctrine to sue the federal government. This ended up going all the way to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court where they won. And they said, absolutely. This mm-hmm. Utah Lake, even the federal government can't override that state right um, to these lands. You know, th- this change had happened. Utah Lake had shifted from the reeds and things like that, min- mainly to uh, the algae and cyanobacteria in the lake. People recognized that issue. They weren't quite sure what to do. So there was a series of proposals after that change throughout the 70s and 80s about what we should do with Utah Lake. In uh, 1989, there was a proposal called the Utah Lake Authority that was put forward. And this was a comprehensive plan they were going to completely remake the lake system. They wanted to uh, build multiple causeways across the lake. They even wanted to dike off Goshen Bay. It's the, this large uh, area on the south end of the lake. In their minds, that wasn't very useful. The, the water there sometimes becomes brackish. That means partially salty because of the evaporation there. So you couldn't use it for irrigation the way you could water on the north end of the lake. They just saw it as a waste. So they wanted to dike off that area. <laughs> wanted to build a giant artificial island in the middle of the lake with the dredged material and fill in Provo Bay. And in their mind, this was going to solve all uh, one um, a kind of a miracle cure for Utah Lake. Thankfully, that didn't, <clears throat> that didn't go anywhere and uh, didn't get traction in the legislature. People decided, hey, we want to take a more measured approach to Utah Lake. So that was cooler heads prevailed. There's another important thing that I mixed up. Sorry if this isn't exactly chronological. Okay. In the ni- early 1980s, just before I was born, there was a period of, of a few wet years. So 1982 and 1983 was well above average, especially with snow, which is really important to the year-long hydrological balance, but also with rain. And so those wet years ended up causing flooding, uh, first in, in Utah Lake, but then the water has to go down gradient, so it ended up in the Great Salt Lake. There was a battle between Salt Lake County and Utah County, where Utah County was saying, we want to let more water through the Jordan River because we're starting to flood the farms and buildings around, um, around Utah Lake. And Salt Lake County was saying, absolutely not. We're flooding <laughs> downtown Salt Lake right now, and yeah. uh, all these rivers and the, the bird refuge is getting flooded. And so there was a real issue with too much water at that time. I actually um, remember this. I'm a little older than you. <laughs> okay, yeah, so you may... Yeah, you may I remember be. watching this on the news and things, yeah. They uh, uh, put all the sandbags along the uh, streets in Salt Lake. Somebody caught a fish out of that artificial river that was just flowing <laughs> down. Yeah. Uh, we need to remember... We live in this closed basin. We've got to live within our hydrological means on both ends. And so, you know, the Utah Lake and the Great Salt Lake are really important evaporators. And that's a, an outlet for the water to go during periods of high, of, of high water. They also are a, a very important source of local precipitation. Um, but again, you're starting to see this picture of how all the attributes of the lake are important to its function. And so Utah Lake Authority, that... That didn't uh, get any traction. However, the June sucker was listed as an endangered fish also in the 1980s. I think that the year was 1986, but check me on that. June sucker was listed as an endangered species. Remember, this is the only place that it lives in the whole world, is in the Utah Lake system. And that started a process acquiring uh, local actors to build a plan. It also brought resources to the lake that hadn't been available before. Some full-time personnel were designated to work on this issue. There also were funds available for habitat restoration and other efforts. Though there were uh, legitimate restoration efforts before that that we should recognize, going all the way back to the 1930s, right, where they put in those water control regulations. Things got serious and started in earnest, in my opinion, in the in the eighties and and nineties. And and they, it is nineteen eighty six. Yeah, okay, for great. the June sucker. Thanks for that fact check, Katie. So in the the June sucker uh, recovery implementation program was created. Central Utah Water Conservancy District, which had existed a long time before that, was one of the partners. In fact, um, there were fourteen to sixteen different groups uh, from the city, mm. state, uh, county, and federal level that were working together. They created a plan of how are we going to protect habitat. So, for example, one of the th- the changes that had triggered the listing was. The county and cities around the lake had dewatered the lower section of the Provo River, and that had happened during the breeding of the June sucker. So that was a huge hit to the, the June sucker, right? They have this life cycle of going up, up the rivers. So 
and it had been done for a variety of reasons. They'd moved the Provo River where it flowed into Utah Lake because it wasn't an inconvenient place. But of course, that has these impacts on the ecosystem. When they uh, had this plan, it, uh, I think that the plan was uh, really put in place in, in around 2002. That uh, started cooperative agreements with farmers throughout the whole watershed, this 3,000 square mile enormous watershed farmers could return some of the water they were using to the river previously they'd been penalized for that Uh. if you didn't use your full water share that could be taken from you and given to someone else Uh, so this is a concept called water banking if you are allowed to okay this year i don't need my third rotation of alfalfa so i'm going to return that water to the stream that still is a beneficial use that's a technical legal term Um, Also, senior water rights were granted to Utah Lake uh, in the name of the June sucker and other species there. That's really important because it means even in a dry year, you can't dewater the Provo River, just meaning divert all of the water from it. And that used to happen quite often. I remember as a kid going down to the Provo River and seeing the bottom section totally dry. That never happens anymore because of this plan, even though we're living through right now a, a drought that is as extreme or more extreme as what happened during the Dust Bowl. Better management practices and us living within our means allows the ecosystem to still be recovering and thriving. So that June Sucker uh, implementation program, uh, there were multiple habitat restoration programs. The Hobble Creek River or Creek, whatever you want to call it, previously had been in a culvert. It was underground. It was daylighted, meaning that it was dug up and Mm. uh, the habitat was restored. Incredibly successful project. Now uh, you have all kinds of bird watchers and bird hunters and fisher people and boaters and uh, just photographers that can access that area. Really, really beautiful. I encourage you to to go there if if you haven't been there. More recently, the Provo River Delta Restoration Project was started. Phragmites was an invasive species that really got a toehold in the 20th century in the Utah Lake system and throughout the whole U.S. Those removal programs started. Dozens and even hundreds of really creative and innovative restoration projects were put in place to start to improve the Utah Lake system. Our partners at the wastewater treatment plants improved their treatment of water, removing more of the nutrients. So the nutrient loading to the lake started to decrease. And we have since seen all of this restoration work is really bearing fruit. We now have 35 years of satellite records of Utah Lake, and we can see a decline in the intensity and extent of algal blooms. This is a huge success. Uh, And the June sucker, because of all these, these initiatives, these linked initiatives was downlisted last year. So first of all, we need to recognize how uncommon that is. It's very hard to bring a species back from the brink. And because of the vision and decades of work by so many people, this is a huge success. And the June sucker is still threatened. It's even described as being still dependent on these restoration efforts. It's not completely off on its own yet. But last year, 4,000 breeding adults were observed in all these uh, deltas of Utah Lake. Such a huge uh, achievement. Really, really awesome. And again, this unique fish that has ev- that evolved in this area only exists here. So we need to take care of it. Uh, otherwise, we'll lose, uh, lose that species. So these things are on a, a good trajectory, but there also are continued threats to Utah Lake, right? We need right. to recognize um, that all is not well in, in the Utah Lake system. Utah County, we know between 2010 and 2020, Utah is the fastest growing state in the United States. And Utah County is the fastest growing count, or, or not the fastest, the second fastest. Washington County beat us on oh. that one. <laughs> but in, in any case, extremely rapid growth. So we need to be thinking about how is this going to affect nutrient loads to Utah Lake? How is this going to affect natural parts of the watershed that are so crucial at removing the nutrients that do get to Utah Lake? How is this going to affect water flow to Utah Lake? We're also seeing, of course, issues associated with climate change. So algae can grow faster when the water is warmer, and this is a well-known risk factor worldwide. Also, the water can contain less oxygen when it's warmer. That means when you do have algal blooms, the, when the organic matter decomposes, it's easier for you to get dead zones, hypoxic areas that can cause fish kills and release of uh, pollutants from sediment, including methylmercury and and other things. So there absolutely are threats going forward, but we've learned a lot about the system and we've demonstrated that our restoration efforts can be effective when they're working together. So that was a really long monologue. That's Uh, awesome. Katie, sorry. (laughs) 
it was the history, including beginning into our current history, kind of the state of the lake. I think Sam here is going to, to be one of our experts as he's involved in a lot of these restoration projects. Right. You're a master's student right now? Yes, is that I am. Right? So what, what are you doing and how are you involved? What, what did you call it, Ben? The, the Utah Lake Water Quality Study. There you go. Right. How are you involved in the Utah Lake Water Quality Study, Sam? Right. So I got involved with Utah Lake um, near the beginning of 2020. Um, I was starting out my master's. I was planning to work with Ben uh, up an Arctic project, uh, looking at Arctic streams. Um, but I got a call from Zach Andrewd one day, who had been doing research on Utah Lake, and said, hey, my last grad student had to step out because she had a baby, and I need somebody right now to help with this research. Um, so I was able to step in and help out with that research that they've been doing, again, funded by the Department of Environmental Quality. Uh, and what we've been doing on Utah Lake is performing these experiments called bioassay experiments. And what we do in these experiments is we take our boat out onto the lake. Uh, we'll go to a couple different parts of the lake. Uh, we have three collection sites over in the east, the west, and down in Provo Bay. Uh, so we'll go and collect water samples from these different parts of the lake. Uh, we'll divvy them out into these containers that we call cubitainers, just kind of square bottles. Uh, we'll divvy them out into these containers, and to specific bottles, we'll add different nutrients. So a couple of them were part of a nitrogen treatment, a couple were part of a phosphorus treatment, and some were given both nutrients as part of this. Okay. And what we do with these bottles is we will put them in these floating corrals inside the lake. So it's just normal lake water from different parts of the lake uh, with some with added nutrients, and we just let them sit for a couple of days, and we see how, the, how they respond to these added nutrients. Um, and from this, we can clear up a couple of the misconceptions about Utah Lake and answer a couple of our own uh, scientific questions. One of the big misconceptions about Utah Lake is that it's so nutrient-loaded uh, that there is no reason to reduce the amount of nutrients that we're putting into the lake. So there's already so much nitrogen and phosphorus inside the lake, and it's just cycling over and over that if we added more into the lake, it wouldn't change algal bloom intensity or any of the productivity. This is one of the questions that we answered. And since we have samples directly from the lake uh, that we've added nutrients to, we can see that this misconception isn't true. Mm. We've seen additional growth when we added nitrogen and phosphorus. So because of that, we know that it isn't completely nutrient-loaded. Uh, putting more nutrients into the lake would be harmful and would cause more algal blooms to form in the lake. I see. So that's just one of the questions that we answered. You see, there's a reason to care, to, to think about what we're sending downstream. Yes, exactly. And like Ben talked about, uh, with the satellite data that Sinead Tate collected, these algal blooms are getting better and the measures that we've put into place are helping the algal blooms in Utah Lake. It's not an inherently broken system. Which I think is important because people, you know, just get an alert or hear about it on the news and, and kind of just think, oh, Utah Lake's in bad shape. They don't understand that yep. it's, it's getting better. Right. And one of the problems with that is you do hear in the news when there is an algal bloom happening. You don't hear about it when the algal bloom goes away. Right, right, So right. there's this misconception that there's always algal blooms all through the summer, which just isn't true. Yeah, indeed, there was a study um, last year that took a nationwide sample, again, based on this high-resolution satellite data. They found that Utah Lake was in the cleanest category as far as uh, algal blooms are concerned. Mm. That's really remarkable because the amount of pressure we put on Utah Lake is much higher than average. Mm. It just shows the, the amazing resilience of this ecosystem. It's shallowness, the fact that the water is cloudy or turbid, uh, and the... Uh, the evaporation that causes the precipitation of calcite and the biological removal of nutrients is just really amazing on Utah Lake. Almost any other lake, you put the amount of nutrient that we do and you would have wall-to-wall -wall algal blooms all year round, right? We would have to have extremely costly uh, measures to, to stop that issue. Well, maybe Sam, would you touch on that for just a, a second about why it is the lake is so cloudy and then perhaps why that might actually be a good thing? Of course, yeah. But Utah Lake is such an interesting system. 
Uh, it's got this rich history that Ben talked about. It's so large, but so shallow at the same time, which makes it such an interesting lake. Um, one of the reasons that it is so cloudy is because of the formation of calcite, mm -hmm. I believe. With this huge surface area and being in a desert, there's a lot of evaporation that happens on the lake. Um, and I don't know the specifics, but with so much evaporation occurring, uh, it encourages the formation of calcite, which makes the water so murky, which actually helps a bit with the algal blooms. Mm. Uh, since it's so murky, there's less light penetration into the lake and less light that's available for the algal blooms to form. So the murkiness of the lake, which some people see as a really negative part of the lake, is actually good for the algal blooms that happen yeah, in the lake. Yeah, it's a protection. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and when that calcite precipitates, it changes the pH of the water, and that makes the phosphorus that is there less available to um, to uh. the algae that grows. So it's this two there are these two benefits: um, li decreased light penetration, and then also decreased nutrient availability. You know, the the other thing is because Utah Lake gets mixed up so much um, because of the, the the wave action and the wind across the lake, that keeps the whole water column oxygenated. And again, like we oh. mentioned, deeper lakes will split into layers where you have surface water. And then actually, you may have felt this if, if in uh, deeper lakes you ever dive in and it's like really warm on the surface and then cold. Freezing. Down, yeah. Right? Yeah. That's called thermal stratification. And when that happens, it's really hard for oxygen to move across that layer. And so that's when you can get really bad, costly, damaging situations. We call them dead zones. Uh, when the oxygen drops below 0.2 milligrams per liter, uh, the fish die, the invertebrates die, and uh, you have this interesting chemistry. It's interesting, but also problematic. Of Mercury can be methylated and released from the sediment, and uh, also phosphorus and other nutrients can be released en masse from the sediment, even natu natural phosphorus that's there. Great. So it, again, it's like, hey, there's wisdom in what we've got here. So you can have the two kind of approaches. One uh, intellectually humble approach where you arrive, you try to understand your place in the system. How does it work? Why is it the way that it is? Or you can have kind of this wish list. Uh, Wendell Berry calls this second approach arrogant ignorance, mm. where you arrive and you say, hey, what are the 12 things I'd like to change about this place? And then you get about the work of remaking it in your own image rather than saying, hey, what is there and how can I sustain and, and support this ecosystem? Yeah, you talked about that there's still some threats for Utah Lake, and it sounds like just development is one of them. Absolutely. You know, the Utah County did a valley visioning exercise a few years ago that uh, everybody can access. It's valleyvisioning.org. It looked at what will happen in the valley over the next um, 20, 30 years uh, with all of this growth. If we don't have any kind of coordination, we're just going to have more and more sprawl, um, throughout the valley, that's going to increase the amount of traffic, uh, air pollution, the time that people take to get to different places. So they went through these five scenarios of kind of different visions for the valley. And it was a really cool comprehensive process. And there's a huge difference between smart growth, and they don't call it this in the, in the report, but I'll call it dumb growth, <laughs> where you don't have this long-term perspective. Uh, you don't think about transportation corridors and don't think about, okay, how, where are people going to be buying their food and uh, where are going to be the cultural and commercial centers in, the, in these different communities. And there's a big difference uh, for the quality of life in the valley. There's also a big difference for Utah Lake. You have huge differences in the amount of water use for these scenarios. Now, there also is a private proposal that was um, put forward in 2017 by a, an LLC called Lake Restoration Solutions. And they submitted a proposal to the Forestry, Fire, and State Lands, the state agency that's required to manage these sovereign lands for the people of Utah. This proposal was unlike anything that had ever been submitted before. They wanted to dredge Utah Lake and take that dredged sediment and put it into artificial islands and then build uh, large cities on the lake, housing between 200 and 500,000 people. Enormous, I mean, larger than Salt Lake City proper uh, out in the middle of Utah Lake. And it was a non-starter because remember, the lake bed has to be held in public trust for the people of Utah, present and future. And so you can't even buy sovereign lands. You can sometimes exchange land for them, so you have mm -hmm. some monetary compensation up to 25% of the value. But you've got to switch a parcel with the state. That way, the amount of sovereign lands doesn't decline. 
And that was established, as you explained, in the 70s when they had those legal battles already. Yeah, it was put in place in when Utah became a state and yeah, then uh, defended and formalized in the 70s when the federal government uh, challenged that doctrine. So it, it, it was unclear because you don't have any lake that you could switch, right? So maybe right. maybe somebody could come in and say, okay, I've got this private lake and I'll give you some of its lake bed for some of the lake bed in Utah Lake. Uh, but that's not possible. It's the largest freshwater lake in Utah. There's no, no private land like that. So this group approached the members of the legislature and uh, got them to pass HB 272, which is called the Utah Lake Amendments, that, that 2018 law. And it created an alternative pathway. You know, previously, any project considered around Utah Lake would go through the same kind of vetting process, talking with various state and federal agencies to get approvals and move forward. This created a specific, unique mechanism for a project like this, a development project, to be considered. And it said the legislature can dispose of, that's the legal term for giveaway, some sovereign lands in exchange for comprehensive restoration of the lake ecosystem. And there is a list of criteria associated with that bill, but it was really troubling not only to me, but to many in the legal community that all of a sudden Utah Lake was put on different uh, footing legally yeah. than any other water body in, in the state, right? The Great Salt Lake it has the, the sovereign land protections, clearly. There's no loophole for, okay, yeah, if you can fix part of the Great Salt Lake, we're going to give you a portion of it. Yeah. Uh, and so there was a lot of concern in that, and there was a lot of coverage in 2018, both about this proposal, because it was really unprecedented. You know, the artificial islands that they were talking about building, eight times larger than any dredged islands ever built anywhere in the world, let alone in a sensitive freshwater lake in the Great Basin. Right. You know, we live in an area that's 98 or 99% land, depending on how you count it. And it doesn't make much common sense to fill in the one wet spot and build there. <laughs> you know, we're, right. we're surrounded there's, by so much There's some land, other right? places you could do this. <laughs> also, the these big changes to the lake system threaten all of the progress that has been made and all of the legitimate restoration uh, efforts that have been made over decades. We're on a good trajectory now. And so there's a big question mark about, does it make sense to completely throw everything out the window and then start over with this kind of um, drastic project? And... The project is based on these two premises or two problems as they see it. They say, you know, as Sam mentioned, there's lots of evaporation. They see that evaporation as a bad thing. In fact, last Thursday, they presented to the Utah Lake Commission and said the number one ecological benefit of this project is that it's going to reduce evaporation on the lake. Now, the other problem that they say is that the lake sediment is contaminated, that it's uh, loaded with nutrients and heavy metals and things. Now, there have been multiple scientific studies taking lake cores uh, across the lake that have demonstrated that's not the case. Thankfully, the, the lake sediment is in really good shape, and it has background levels of nutrients and extremely low levels, well below any uh, toxic threshold of uh, heavy metals and other things that have accumulated in it. So that's Again, testament to the lake's amazing ability to purify and remove um, any pollutants that get to it. But this project says we've got to dredge the lake, and it would be great to reduce the surface area of the lake to decrease evaporation. And they, they quote these numbers of billions of gallons of saved water each year. But of course, when you zoom out and take a full holistic view of the lake, what do we know about its hydrology and biology? All of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, a lake's sediment is, is often described as its liver in the literature uh. because it's so biogeochemically important. And the evaporation on the lake has multiple benefits, a source of local precipitation, removing nutrients, creating this uh, calcite that protects us from the algal blooms, all these things that are really important that we wouldn't want to change about the lake system. But they see these as, as problems in the lake. So a lot of coverage in 2018, but then things kind of went dark and there wasn't much discussion about the project until this last year, we heard that they had been moving forward. There was a change in who the CEOs were in the company, and they had been meeting with the legislature behind closed doors and kind of lobbying to get this thing to move forward. And so that was really concerning. Thankfully, we had this symposium uh, yeah. that was there that was uh, independent researchers and uh, managers who could go forward and say, here's what is going on with the lake. Because actually, as a researcher, I felt some responsibility that we hadn't done a good enough job getting the word out about what was going on at Utah Lake. 
because there are lots of even informed citizens who really felt like, oh, we need to do something about Utah Lake. And then they thought this was the only possibility. Right, right. And so because we hadn't been effective enough in our outreach and education, lots of people thought this was the only thing that could work, even though it doesn't bear any resemblance to other restoration projects. You know, this kind of starts with, all right, we want to build islands so that we can sell the land, and that's what's going to fund the restoration efforts. That's backwards to how we usually approach these things. We say we want to understand the ecosystem and identify what needs to be done. And then afterwards you figure out, okay, how do we fund it? How do we get it done uh, in a collaborative, open way? So, yeah, we had this symposium and... Then again, things kind of went dark until we found out. And I say we, this was me and the other organizers of the Utah Lake Symposium, uh, as well as there was a local environmental group called Conserve Utah Valley that got involved. They've been a really effective, diverse group of people from Utah County who have, for example, protected Bridalville Falls last year when there was a threat of Bridalville Falls being privatized and turned into a drug rehabilitation center. And so we then heard in late December that they were were still pushing forward and had an event organized at the Capitol. And so we started, again, putting material out there. And thankfully, Representative Kevin Stratton, my representative personally, but he represents much of uh, northern Utah County, he recognized that there were some issues with this 2018 bill. And uh, we... We met with both of the original sponsors of the bill and other lawmakers asking them, hey, do you see any issues here? Because it's created this, the potential that this project goes through that may be unconstitutional. In 2019, the Utah Supreme Court ruled against the transfer of a very small area of sovereign lands, nowhere near the thousands of acres that we're talking about here. And so it may just be unconstitutional to begin with. But in any case, the fact that it's on the books currently creates this pathway for um, uh, developers to come in and propose these projects. And so just last week, Representative Stratton organized the Utah Lake Summit. This was co-organized by um, Stratton and Conserve Utah Valley. They've been working together in a really fruitful collaboration from what I can tell. They've brought me in sometimes as uh, as a technical advisor saying, okay, what's the history of the lake and the chemistry and hydrology? And so now the legislative session starts today. So now it is in the hands of our legislators and also the hands of the people of Utah to help them understand these issues and encourage them to make choices towards wise stewardship of the Utah Lake system. So I encourage everyone, you can go on to utah.gov and track a bill. You know, where is it at? Where, when is the hearing going to be? So, so from what I understand, uh, Representative Stratton's amendments to that 2018 law have not yet been filed. But in the next few days or week, they should be. Now, there's also another large bill called the Utah Lake Authority that's been put forward. This has no relation to the 1989 Utah Lake authority. But uh, Representative Brady Brammer from Pleasant Grove is proposing to completely overhaul how decisions are made around Utah Lake and also how restoration work is funded on Utah Lake. And a full copy of that bill hasn't yet been released. But as soon as that is, I encourage everyone to go onto utah.gov Take a look at that bill. Call their legislator. Um, let them know we really want to bolster and expand the legitimate restoration efforts on Utah Lake to ensure that this ecosystem can continue recovering. You know, th- the political process is messy and it sometimes can be inscrutable, you know, hard to understand uh, yeah. from the outside. But thankfully, at the state level, our representatives and senators are usually quite responsive. So you can put in your area code um, and it'll show you right away, here are the two people that represent you personally. And I find that they pick up the phone, you know, send a text message, uh, give them a phone call, send them an email, say, here's what I'm concerned about. And Conserve Utah Valley has been really good educating people how to do that. So that's another great resource to go to, to kind of learn how to be involved in this process. That's great. I'll add all of these websites so people can find them easily. Well, thank you, Ben, for giving us the overview of the history of the lake and Sam being uh, actively involved in the understanding of the lake. And then thank you both for helping us understand what restoration is already going on in the lake and what the future of the lake might be. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I think I would just like to say as my closing remarks that Utah Lake is a beautiful system. It is such a privilege to get to study this lake as part of my research and I would just say it's not a broken system it's a beautiful lake it is milky but that really helps the system overall outside of my research I'm a pretty big bird watcher hey Utah so lake. am I. <laughs> oh, <really>? nice. <laughs> I love birding that's where you go it's a beautiful lake for that um, and it's 
such an awesome place for migration pathways uh, and for seeing so many different species of birds through different parts of the year. Right now, the bald eagles are out there feeding. Mm, right. Yep. But I'll just say, just listen to what Ben has said in this podcast. Uh, check out these websites and just get educated about what's happening right now with the lake. Yeah, I think now more than ever, there's information available on what's going on with Utah Lake. And so hopefully our show notes will be a good place to go to find a lot of these links. Yeah, I, I just completely agree with Sam. And there's a Utah Lake Photography Club that's very active on Facebook and Instagram. Literally every single day, people are sharing just gorgeous photos of this ecosystem. And it's beautiful in every season from every angle. Um, and the, like Sam said, maybe the most important thing you can do is go down and visit Utah Lake. At utahlake.org, you can find uh, all the access points around the lake. There are more than 21 places, I think, uh, that you can get down onto the lake. And I really feel a personal, spiritual, and religious responsibility to take this seriously, our stewardship of the lake system. And it's not just a question of biogeochemistry and hydrology. It's a question of how seriously do we take our relationship with God's creation, from my view. And and so let's think long and hard. Let's use the best available information uh, making decisions about this lake. And then let's remember all of the people who've come before us who have taken that seriously and done work to preserve this lake, not only for right now, but for all future generations. Yeah, that's awesome. Well said. Thank you. And there's so much information out there with the websites that we've shared, but feel free, reach out to each of us. We would love to answer any questions that people have or just talk about the lake itself. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you, Austin. Thank you. Really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Sam.